This morning, we're going to be focusing our attention on the story of the 10 plagues of Egypt. Now, if you were raised in the church or if you spent a fair amount of time in the church, the 10 plagues of Egypt is probably a story that's going to be familiar to you. But this, story, this sermon's going to look a little bit different. This sermon, we're going to be going through a lot of the context, a lot of the Egyptian context, uh, and it'll be basically a retelling or a history lesson of the plagues of Egypt. But one of those really fun, exciting history lessons you had, not like one of those boring ones, I promise. A lot of the research into the plagues, I just want to give credit where it's due, there was a lot of research put into these plagues and, and uh, into Egyptian context, and a lot of that comes from a sermon from John MacArthur. But our text this morning comes from Exodus chapter 7. So if you have a Bible or if you brought your phone, I encourage you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 19. Before we read God's word, let's come before him in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have to gather together to read your word and to understand from it. Uh, what you wish to teach us and what you wanted recorded, Father, so that we could read about it all these years later. And we thank you that in this country and in this place and in this time we have that opportunity and that we're allowed without persecution to open up your word and to uh, speak about it freely. So, Father, I pray that as we do that, uh, you would be with me, that you would speak through me, Father, that it would be your words and not mine. I pray that you would give us open hearts to hear what it is that you're saying to us. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to start at verse 1 and go to uh, 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh sees you, perform a miracle. Then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the bank of the Nile. And take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish of the Nile will die, 
and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the, Egypt, the waters of Egypt, over the streams and the canals, over the ponds and all the reservoirs, and they will be turned to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and stone. The word of the Lord. If you're keeping your Bibles open, we're going to jump a long way through Exodus because, as we know, the plagues aren't just found in what we read this morning, but they are found uh, throughout uh, Exodus. So we're going to be jumping around quite a bit. A few years ago, I started seminary. My plan at that time was to become an ordained minister in the CRC. Uh, Since then, I've changed my direction a little bit, but I still got the benefit of three years of, of seminary courses My favorite course, the one that I still remember vividly, was the first course that I was required to take even before I could start taking other courses. This was called the Bible Survey Course. And what we did is from June the 5th of that year until August the 3rd of that year, we went through the entirety of Scripture. We went through the entire Bible. Now, it's quite a task to do that. If you've ever read through the Bible in rapid succession, you know that it's a large task to do it. But I want to strongly recommend it to any of you. If you ever have that opportunity to be part of a reading group that does this, I want to really encourage you to do it. It doesn't allow a lot of time for you to stop and to reflect on specific passages in Scripture. But what it does is it gives you a greater vision of the overarching themes in Scripture that are repeated over and over again. By going through the themes of each book in rapid succession, you get a beautiful new perspective on the entirety of Scripture. So I think it's a wonderful practice to be a part of if you ever have the opportunity. Now the reason I tell you this is because one of the things that stuck out to me while I was doing this, one of the themes that just continued to to repeat itself throughout Scripture was the idea of God being a God of salvation or God being the Savior of the story. Now, this probably doesn't come as a surprise to you that God is a God of salvation. If you're to ask a Christian, hey, is your God a God of salvation? They'll say, of course. And when you say, well, where can you prove in, in the word of God, where can you prove that God is a God of salvation? You would point to the cross. You would say, Jesus Christ saved me on the cross. So it's not surprising that the theme of God as a savior, God saving us from our sins, is a a theme in scripture that we find in the New Testament. But what I want to kind of reflect on this morning is, how do we know that God is a God of salvation from the Old Testament? How do we know that the God of the Old Testament is the same of the God of the New Testament? So where is the proof in the Old Testament of God being God of salvation? If you were a Jewish person in Jesus' time and you were asked, how do you know that you're God's salvation? You would prove, or you would point to the proof of God being a savior to Exodus. They would point to the Exodus. They would point to the amazing circumstances that surrounded the Israelites leaving slavery in Egypt. So that's what we're going to go through this morning. Now, there are many sermons written about the plagues and each one of them can be a sermon on their own, uh, but we're going to go through all of them this morning. But before we look at each specific plague, we have to understand the context of what was happening in Egypt. What was Egypt? We need to know two things. First, Egypt was an extremely secure and economically sound nation. They had a powerful hold on their area of the world. They had wealth. 
They had resources, they had transportation, they had a strong military. They were a secure nation. If any other nation wanted to go up and battle against Egypt, it would be an insurmountable task. It'd be impossible. You cannot beat Egypt at this time. So that's the first thing. Egypt is an unconquerable nation. The second thing we need to know is that Egypt did not do anything without a religious practice tied to it. There was no division between church and state. The the ruler of Egypt was a pharaoh, but he wasn't an elected official or even a king. He was seen as a deity to the people he ruled. He was a god in Egypt. Everything that they did, the meals they prepared, the the regular uh, uh, daily bathing that they did, all of these things had a religious ceremony attached to it. They had gods for everything they did. Gods for soil, gods for agriculture, gods for sickness, for medicine, for fish, for livestock. Everything had its own god. So that's the context that God has to enter into through Moses and Aaron. He's not just going up against Egypt in the sense that he's going up against Pharaoh or the region or the the nation. He's going up against all the gods of Egypt as well. So with that context in mind, that's how we're going to go through each of these plagues. So let's start with our text in chapter 7. Verse 10, we see that Aaron throws his staff in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it becomes a snake. This is the first time that Moses and Aaron are coming before Pharaoh and saying, God wants you to let his people go. And this could be seen as kind of the polite way of asking. They show up, they make a meeting with Pharaoh and they say, hey, uh, you know, God wants you to let his people go so that they can worship him in the wilderness. Now they accompany this with a, a sign of power, the staff turning into a snake. So this again is the polite ask. But the magicians of Pharaoh, the sorcerers, they are able to do it as well. And so for that reason, Pharaoh doesn't listen. Now this opens the proverbial floodgates to the rest of the plagues to happen. See, by Pharaoh saying no, he's saying no. That sign that you performed, that thing, that show of power that you just did is not that powerful to me. It doesn't impress me. My people can do it. So no, I'm not intimidated by your God. I'm not going to let your people go. And so the floodgates open and God will bring his signs to compel Pharaoh. Now, I feel that we need to to pause here for a little second because one of the things that I was curious about as I studied this passage was, okay, so Aaron threw the staff down, it became a snake. How is it that Pharaoh's magicians were able to perform the same sign? How did they get their staffs to turn into snakes? Now, I spent a lot of time in the commentaries and and in the, the relevant literature trying to find an explanation for this. And to be honest with you, I didn't find a great explanation that I'm comfortable with, not one that I'm comfortable coming and saying, this is what happened. But I think the closest explanation is that these men were illusionists. My brother and I used to watch a show about a a self-proclaimed magician. His name was Chris Angel, and he would do seemingly amazing things on the show, things that were impossible. And people would watch, and you'd have to say, that person's magic. Now, years later, everything that he did has been found out how he did it, and people know how he did it, and no one thinks that he's magic, obviously. But it turns out the biggest reason that these tricks worked is because the people that were watching it wanted to be tricked. They were willing participants in the trick. 
And I think we see that with Pharaoh. See, God's coming and saying, let my people go is a threat to Pharaoh. He is threatened at this point by Moses and Aaron. So when the magicians come and say, well, we'll try and do the same thing, he wants to believe that they can do it because that means he doesn't have to fear this other God. He doesn't have to let this free labor that he's had for years go. And so Pharaoh was a willing participant. He wanted to believe that this was possible and that it happened. Either way, the gauntlet has been thrown down and now there's a battle royale between the gods of Egypt and the one true God. Pharaoh hardens his heart and so God brings the plague of blood. In chapter 7, verse 19, it says, Over the streams, the canals, over the ponds, and all the reservoirs, they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. So Aaron stretches out his hand, and this happens. All of the water, all of the water in Egypt turns to blood. This is a crushing blow to Egypt. See, their wealth, their agriculture, their success, their infrastructure, all of it relied on the Nile. Without the Nile, Egypt is basically just a desert. The Nile flooded regularly. It offered them uh, irrigation for their crops, allowed them to uh, harvest that, and then they could trade with other nations. It's what gave them their stability. It's what gave them their economic strength and allowed them to be such a powerhouse. Egypt demanded on the, or depended on the Nile so much that they even had a god for it. They believed the Nile was a god, and so we have the first god of Egypt called Happy. <clears throat> so here we have the first round of God of Israel versus Happy, the god of the Nile. The Egyptians relied on happy to provide for all of their basic needs, and now God had completely obliterated this God that they worshipped. Verse 21 said, the fish of the Nile died. That's their food source, gone. The river smelt so bad that the Egyptians couldn't even drink its water. That's their, their, their source for life. Water is gone. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. The God of Egypt that was supposed to provide for the needs of the, the Egyptians through the Nile had been rendered completely useless. And so in round one, we have a clear victory for God in this battle. But unfortunately, we see in verse 22 that the Egyptian magicians managed to do the same thing again. And now again, I, I'm not sure how. I don't think, I'm not even sure where they found clean water to try this because it said all of the water in Egypt had turned to blood. But I think that, again, we see a willing participant in Pharaoh with the success of these magicians. If you've ever seen The Prince of Egypt, which is a, a Disney movie depicting the, the story of the Exodus, and as far as Disney movies about biblical events goes, it's actually pretty good. You know, if you have kids, I would encourage you to watch it. Or if you're an adult and you like Disney movies, go ahead and watch it. But you see that depicted. They take a bowl of water, they kind of turn and throw dust in it and say, look, we turned it to blood. Not sure if that's exactly how it happens, but I think, again, we have Pharaoh as a willing participant in being fooled. But round one goes to God, and so we go to round two because Pharaoh doesn't yield. In chapter eight, we see the plague of the frogs. Now, we think of frogs as kind of noisy, slimy, creepy creatures, but frogs were actually a really good thing in Egypt. See, when the Nile flooded, it left puddles all over the land. And it flooded and it irrigated their land so that they were actually able to grow a crop. Because without the Nile, remember, Egypt is just a desert. Without the Nile, there is no growing of crops. And so when it flooded, you'd have puddles everywhere and you would hear these frogs 
croaking and you'd see them everywhere splashing in the puddles. And it was a good thing. You would know the Nile has done its job. The Nile has provided for us. But this wasn't a few croaking frogs. Verse 3 says, They will come up into your palace and on your bedroom and onto your bed and in the house of your officials and on your people and into your oven and kneading trough. The frogs will go up on your people and all of your officials. Now put yourself in that picture for a moment. You're living in Egypt, which is basically a desert, and you work hard throughout the entire day, and at the end of the night, all you want to do is lay down your head, but as you crawl into bed, there are hundreds of frogs in your bed. Everywhere you go, when you walk around, there are frogs everywhere, all over the place. They're, they're in, your, in all of your, uh, your, your bathing uh, places. They're, they're in your kitchen. They're all over. It says they are even in your ovens. Now, that's the part that I thought that wouldn't be so bad. You turn on the oven, you got frog legs. That seems fine. But the Egyptians would not have agreed with me. See, this was a problem. There's an Egyptian called Heket, and she was a frog. The Egyptians loved frogs. In fact, killing one on purpose or by accident was punishable by death. So you can imagine with all these frogs all over the place, imagine it's night and you're walking anywhere and you actually accidentally squish a few things that you're supposed to be worshiping. You'd be feeling quite a bit of guilt for killing this God that you worshiped over and over and over again. And furthermore, this God that you worship and love so much, maybe you're starting to feel resentment towards because every time you crawl into bed, you're accompanied with frogs. Now this part made me laugh a little bit. It says in chapter 8, verse 7, the magicians did the same thing. Now we just read that the frogs were everywhere. So I'm not sure where they cleared out a space to demonstrate to Pharaoh that they were able to produce frogs. I, the scene in my mind is that Pharaoh says, can you produce frogs? And they open a door and say, look, frogs, we did it. They were already there. But again, we have Pharaoh being a willing participant in being tricked. But once again, God shows his superiority, not just by creating a nuisance for the Egyptians, but by destroying a God of Egypt, a God that they worshipped. God is saying, no, you don't worship other gods. I am the one true God, and your gods are useless. But once again, Pharaoh resists, and so God sends the flies and the gnat. Now, the word gnat here is translated most like, I would say, our mosquito, So that's how we're going to imagine this. Verse 16 says, Through the land of Egypt, the dust would become gnats. Now this would be torturous. Imagine in a desert, lots of dust, all of the dust rises up from the ground and becomes mosquitoes. This would be torturous. The bites and the wounds that would come from this kind of plague would be almost unbearable. If you spent any time in northern Ontario for for a camping trip or something, and you've been eaten alive one night, you know that feeling of trying to sleep with bites all over you. This would be that times a hundred. Additionally, priests of, of Egypt, they had to remain ceremonial clean. They washed themselves several times a day. Imagine trying to stay clean when the dust has literally come up off the ground and swarmed you. Now, it's also worth mentioning that they finally, in this plague, see the Egyptian magicians fail. They are unable to replicate this miracle. And in verse 19, they actually say, this is the finger of God. But that doesn't stop Pharaoh. He still has hardened his heart, so now come the flies. Now, I'm not sure what the demographic is in this congregation, but the congregation I come from, many of us are farmers. Or at least we visited a farm. 
And if you've ever visited a farm on a very hot day in the middle of summer, right before there's going to be a big thunderstorm and maybe you walked by a manure pit, you know what it is to have flies all over you. At that point, you don't even bother swatting them. They're just a part of you and they're a part of your life. But that's not where you eat your lunch, right? You go inside away from the flies to do that. But these flies would have been on another level. Verse 21 says, The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies and even the ground where they are. Everywhere you walk, you would be walking on flies. They covered the walls. They covered the roof. They covered everything in your house. And every step you took, you'd be killing a whole bunch of flies and leaving their guts all over the floor. And the sound of millions of flies buzzing in unison would have been torture in itself. The Egyptian god Kepri had the head of, you guessed it, a fly. And it was the God for creation. The Egyptians believed it was the God that created. Now we know that the only God that creates is the one true God, Yahweh. But once again, God shows his dominance by almost ironically disgracing this God. Because this God that they worship, the fly which they worship to create things, is now destroying the things that they have. Destroying all of their property. So God shows his dominance by disgracing this God and making it do the very thing, the very opposite thing that the Egyptians worship it for. But this still isn't enough to make Pharaoh change his mind, so he brings the plague of the livestock in chapter 9, verse 2. If you refuse to let them go, it says in, chapter, in verse 2, if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them back, the hand of the Lord will bring a terrible plague on your livestock in the field, but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and that of Egypt, so that no animal belonging to the Israelites will die. This time, the plague is very different. It's different for two reasons. First of all, this plague is only going to attack Egypt. And the plagues have also changed now that this has gone from a nuisance, you know, bites on your leg is a nuisance, a big nuisance, flies in your house is a nuisance, a really big nuisance, frogs everywhere is a nuisance. But this is actually economically devastating. This plague was attacking their income. It was attacking their food source. It was attacking their way of life and how they survived. But God would not let his people suffer and starve. So he made a distinction so that their animals would live. But this was more than just an economical attack, of course. Hathor, the Egyptian god of love and protection, had the head of a cow. The god responsible for protection couldn't even protect itself from this disaster. The god of protection couldn't protect the Israelites from economic disaster. The god of protection couldn't protect any Egyptian from anything. God shows his dominance again. We're going to keep going through these. We're going to go a bit faster. Next came the boils. The Egyptians had wounds that were oozing and and leaking. Isis, the god of medicine and peace. Sekhmet, the god of preventing disease. Serapis, the god of healing. And Imhotep, another god of medicine. All of these gods were useless. They couldn't stop the boils. They couldn't stop the oozing and couldn't stop the festering and leaking. Nothing would stop God from showing his dominance, least of which these Egyptian gods. After the boils came hail. Hail destroyed the crops and even killed people. They were hail pieces so big that if you got hit by one, you would die. Newt, the Egyptian god of the sky who was supposed to bring blessings from above, clearly wasn't doing her job. Seth, the Egyptian god of storms and disorder, wasn't preventing any of these things from happening. God was embarrassing their entire religious structure. 
After the hail, we have locusts. As if the other bugs won't enough, now we have locusts. Chapter 10, verse 5 says that they will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left. Now imagine all this has happened. The Nile's turned to blood. There have been frogs everywhere jumping all over your stuff. There's been gnats. There's been flies. All of your livestock are dead. Hail has destroyed a whole bunch of your crops. And now what little you have left, the little scraps that you could gather from the ground of your fields, locusts are going to come. And locusts leave nothing behind. They take everything. They're going to finish off this nation's resources. Even Pharaoh's officials in verse 7 say, do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? The Egyptians also worship locusts, of course. They worshiped everything. And now we're going to cover the ground of Egypt with them and take all that Egypt had left. Now you would think that all these other plagues had defeated every god that Egypt has to offer. We've had just about every bug and insect as a god for them. But there was one prominent God that hadn't been addressed yet. And it was one of their most reverent gods. And actually, it's one of their most famous gods. It might be a God that you've even heard of today. The God Ra. Ra was the sun God. And he was the God that provided light and and rained down light on the nation of Egypt. God obliterated him. Egypt was faced with a darkness so profound that it could be felt. It says in verse 21. For three days this darkness lingered, but the Israelites had light in the places that they lived. Now there's one more plague that's probably the most well-known plague, and it's the most well-known one because it is the hardest one. And that's the plague of the firstborn. In chapter 12, verse 29, we read, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, to the firstborn of all the livestock as well. And there was a loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. There was a loud wailing in Egypt. Sometimes the Bible really understates things. I wrote this this sermon probably, probably a year ago, but I just had my firstborn in November. And uh, in reading this sermon again, I thought there was a loud wailing in Egypt. You could write books and books on the misery that would have been felt in this nation at this time. Every single house had someone dead, the firstborn, the pride of so many's lives gone, taken away from them. A terrible plague for this nation. But which God does this plague attack? Who is God attacking in this plague? Well, the last plague has been saved for the greatest god of Egypt, and that's Pharaoh himself. See, through all of these plagues, God's been doing a few things. First, he's showing Israel that he is for them. He's showing his people that he is for them. Secondly, he is showing Egypt that their gods are worthless. And thirdly, he's trying to persuade Pharaoh to let his people go. Now, Pharaoh was a deity. He was worshipped by the Egyptian. He was believed to be the morning and the evening star. He brought the sun out in the morning and he put it away at night. He was the chosen one, the king even among the other gods. This last attack on Egypt's gods was to show them that even their pharaoh didn't measure up to God. Even their pharaoh, the king of gods, could not save his own firstborn. And so Pharaoh finally 
after not measuring up, relents and lets the people of Israel go. These 10 plagues destroyed everything that Egypt had. These 10 plagues, these wonders shown by God, brought Egypt from the most powerful people in its part of the world to a crippled, desolate nation with nothing left. These plagues also showed the nations that the that they had a God, or sorry, it showed the nation of Israel that they had a God who loved them, a God who loved them enough that he would fight for them. They had a God that was more powerful than the gods of their enemies, and they had a God that rescued them, gave them salvation. So the question that I want to close with today is, what is the takeaway for us today, thousands of years later? I want to suggest there are two clear takeaways from this passage of Scripture, two things we can learn from this knowledge First, idolatry. If ever there was a nation that had an issue with idolatry, it was Egypt. They had statues and paintings of everything. They had gods everywhere, and they worshipped them. They were incorporated in every single aspect of their lives. But through these plagues, we see the absolute uselessness of idols. We see that the one true God is infinitely more real, infinitely more powerful, and infinitely more present than anything that we can make with our hands would ever be. Now, perhaps you don't bow down to statues, so you say, what's the point, Tom? I don't have idols in my house. In fact, I hope you don't. I hope you're not bowing down to statues at home. Otherwise, you know, we'll, maybe the elders will come and do a visit. I'm not sure, but it doesn't mean that we don't have idols, Money, work, popularity, entertainment, government. These are all idols that we have. Things that we prioritize in our, over our relationship with Christ. Things that we think are more important than our relationship with Christ. Any word that we hold above this word, anything we trust more than we trust this word, is an idol in our lives. And we need to remove these idols. They are useless Perhaps the greatest idol that we have is the love of ourselves. John Piper once did a sermon series on the greatest idol of self, and he suggested that the absolute root of all of our sins was that we love ourselves and our own pleasure more than we love being in relationship with God. And I think that's true. We need to remove these idols from our lives and focus on our relationship with Christ This only happens when the Spirit leads us. When the Spirit convicts us of those things in our lives that we are making too high a priority and they're they're overshadowing our relationship with God, the Spirit convicts us of those things and the Spirit gives us the power to remove them from our lives. So just as God removed the idols from the nations of Egypt, he removes the idols from our lives as well. The second takeaway that we have is that We have a God who saves us even today. Now, I once had a youth in my congregation ask me, after we had talked about the crossing of the Red Sea, the youth came up to me and asked me, why don't we see God doing these amazing things today? Why don't we see God opening up the heavens and raining hail down on our enemies? Why don't we see God parting the seas so that we can get out of bondage and slavery It's a fair question, but I want to suggest that when we hear the good news of the gospel, 
The true good news of the gospel, when the Spirit takes the blinders off and we truly understand that Jesus Christ died not just to save a nation from slavery, but Jesus Christ, who was God, became a person. God became the thing that he created and allowed the thing that he created to kill him. Why did he do that? To save the thing that he created. When we understand the beautiful love and grace that has been extended to us through that action, not just to save a people from slavery, but to save all people through all times, we have to conclude that the works performed here in Egypt pale in comparison to the work of Jesus Christ that was done on the cross to save us from our sins. Take time and reflect on that. Remember the gift that we have. Understand the grace. Pray for the Spirit to remind you daily and hourly and every minute of every day that God paid the price for all of our sins. And that wonder is magnificent. At the beginning of the sermon, I asked how we knew that our God is a God of salvation in the Old Testament We know that our God is a God of salvation because we look at this story from the other side of the cross. We all see the cross and realize that Jesus Christ, our God, rescued us. But the Jewish faith at this time would have pointed to two events. They would have pointed to the ten plagues and they would have pointed to the Passover. The Passover is a a large topic that I don't really have time to, to go into this morning. That's actually part two of this sermon series. So if you want to hear you have to have me back. That's my job security. But in these 10 plagues, we see the beginning of God revealing himself to his people as a God of salvation. It's my prayer that we would look at these 10 plagues of Egypt, and in seeing them, we would remember that we have a God who is present. We have a God who's powerful, a God who's real, who's tangible, and we have a salvation Each and every one of us have a salvation that is no less wonderful than the salvation story that we find here in Exodus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you put it on the hearts of man and you worked through them to record these amazing events, Father. These amazing wonders that you brought on to the nation of Egypt in order to rescue your people. We thank you that from it we can learn, Father, that no idol we can create or no idol we can follow will ever trump your power and your love and your ability to save us, Father. And so we thank you that we can read about this now. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts, convict us of the idols that we that we. We have in our lives anything that we prioritize above our relationship with you. And Father, I pray that when we're convicted of these things, that you would give us the strength to to put those things away and to focus, Father, on our relationship with you so that we may grow closer with you, Father. Father, I also pray that you would remind us every minute of every hour of every day of the amazing, wondrous work of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our, salvation, for our salvation, Father. I pray that we would never take that for granted or, or look to these stories and think that they're a more wonderful method of salvation, Father, but that we would see the cross for what it truly is, the most amazing wonder that has happened throughout history since the creation of the universe, Father, that you would save us, that Jesus would humble himself 
to become a man so that man may kill him, so that man may be saved, Father. And we pray that we would remember all of these things for your glory and for your honor and for your praise, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come just about the